What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And welcome to the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. I am Vicky. And I'm Janelle. And we're back again. The year is almost over. I'm pretty sure this will come up before the end of the year. The year is almost over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I don't even know. Dude, time? we've just been stumbling, stumbling in the dark through 2020, trying to survive. And we've made it this far. Um, <laughs> I yeah. know that's not very positive. I'm just trying to like... <laughs> We're alive. Keep it light. <laughs> yeah. Yes. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. We've got a great show for you today. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. So, Janelle, I told you at the beginning, I don't really have a traditional news segment mm-hmm. i kind of wanted to look at 2020 oh boy and <laughs> talk about i know talk about some of the things that have happened because let's <laughs> be real it's been a, a very exciting year i'm not saying that um, in a positive way necessarily <laughs> it's been a year <laughs> it's been a year um, this can really be a whole episode i would say <laughs> I know. I would say most of us could agree, not the most ideal year. Mm-hmm. On a personal note, you and I have not been uh, recording in person since March. Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of crazy that, like, we just have been recording remotely this whole time. I kind of can't believe it. Mm-hmm. We've been able it's going to be weird that long, but... when we go back into studio because I'm not going to know what to do. <laughs> I know. I know. So I kind of wanted to look at the year. These for for you might hate me for this, but (laughs) let's talk about some of the things that have happened. I'm going to list at you for a second because I had a moment where I was like, I don't even I can't even remember what happened at the beginning of the year because there's just been event after event after event after event. It's like a mental block. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like I blocked it all out. So we started the year with the pandemic. We sure did. We here in America 
had an extremely polarizing election season that is now over. Thank God. Um, (laughs) Officially over, but we'll we'll see what happens in January. (laughs) Yes, officially (laughs) over. The Hong Kong protests started Mm -hmm. this year, as well as the massive Australian bushfires. Mm -hmm. That was a thing. Yeah. Oh, that was so sad, too. It was hard to watch the news. Yes. Yeah. Some people might think this one is bad. I personally think it's awesome. But Prince Harry and Meghan Markle quit the royal family. That was a big to do. (laughs) I think it's amazing. I'm all like, yes, independence. Down with the monarchy. (laughs) Yes. They also had Brexit. That was a thing. It's not super great for them. Nope. We had protests sparked by the death of George Floyd, protests that are continuing now in a larger sense as these protests are against police brutality. But, you know, we can't talk about that without talking about the police brutality at protests against police brutality. That's a whole thing. It's a never ending circle. I know. I know. It's I it, you you can't even write this stuff if you wanted to. Well, technically, somebody did write about it. <laughs> well, the guy yes. from Behind the Bastards, uh, uh, he wrote an entire <laughs> series, a, a hypothetical series about what would happen if America went into another civil war. And he was pretty accurate. Oh, my God. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's called It Could Happen Here, if yep. you guys are interested. It's a very interesting and honestly scary And guess podcast. what? <laughs> it did happen here. <laughs> still happening here (laughs) yeah maybe not to that extreme but it's like the road to a third civil war Mm -hmm. the 2020 olympics were postponed i was very devastated by that i forgot those were happening to be honest (laughs) yep that was supposed to happen this year also kobe bryant died in a helicopter crash that was a thing that happened that also did happen yes yep a ukrainian flight crashed in tehran that killed everybody on board that happened, I think, towards the beginning of the year. Murder hornets. I can't have this list without talking about murder hornets. <laughs> yeah, whatever happened to those murder hornets? <laughs> I don't even know. They were just like here and then they left. I miss the murder hornets. <laughs> <laughs> we also had wildfires on the West Coast, like worse than normal. They've just been getting progressively worse out there. Mm-hmm. The beloved Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. Ugh, great woman. We also had a 2020 stock market crash. There was a massive explosion in Beirut that killed at least 190 people. Honestly, this is like a small little clip of what happened in 2020. The list can go on and on. But there are some really good things that happened in the criminal justice landscape, specifically in relation to laws regarding wrongful convictions and police practices during an arrest and some other things. So I just wanted to go through those. There was, I think it's a total of 11 laws passed in various states in the U.S. Mm -hmm. So in Minnesota, they passed a law mandating the use of science-backed eyewitness identification practices, Mm. which is awesome. Both Maryland and Oklahoma passed laws to track and regulate the use of jailhouse informants, which I thought was interesting. And I'm wondering if I don't know if there's other states that already have um, some sort of like jailhouse informant tracking system 
and whether it is more successful than not tracking them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Virginia amended its writ of actual innocence law to reduce barriers to people trying to prove their innocence through non-DNA evidence, improved its post-conviction DNA testing law, and passed a law requiring police to record interrogations. Well, who would have thought? I thought that was a law everywhere. Yeah. Nope. uh, That one really astounded me. Nebraska passed a law allowing experts to testify about eyewitness identification in court. And actually, Nebraska is the final state to pass a law about that, about letting experts testify about eyewitness identification in court. New York repealed a law that previously permitted police misconduct information to remain secret, disciplinary matters and alleged misconduct, even if deemed unsustained or unfounded, can now be publicly disclosed. The reform measure was championed by a coalition that included the Innocence Project. The Innocence Project also worked in a coalition to successfully defend the main aspects of New York's discovery law, which was amended in the face of law enforcement pushback. So big things in New York. Connecticut passed a very similar law, making police records public by removing barriers previously used by police and collective bargaining agreements to conceal records. Which is fucking nuts. (laughs) Yeah. I And this is, I think, a conversation a lot of people have where it's like, well, nobody can go to your job and say, I want to see their disciplinary records, you know. Mm-hmm. But I don't I don't work in public office. Yeah, I don't hold a gun in, at people, so it's a little different. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I think it's great that they're making it easier because I think it's going to allow the population at large to hold these people accountable. Because a lot of times what happens is you have bad officers um, with extensive disciplinary records that just get sort of like passed around from office. It's very similar to what happens in the Catholic Church with priests where Mm -hmm. they kind of just move them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So those are all the big laws. There was also a total of 107 exonerations across the country this year. 16 alone were in Illinois, and most of those were drug-related crimes thanks to the legalization of marijuana. Oh, um, just wait till we get to my story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so <laughs> what happened in Illinois, in our lovely home state, marijuana was legalized January 1st. Along with that actually came the overturning of convictions that were uh, felony charges in relation to marijuana possession. So there was a huge chunk of those. I'll tell you where to find all this this information later. But if you couldn't tell, our episode has a little bit of a theme this week. Mm -hmm. Sure (laughs) does. So going into the holiday season, it's kind of this, you know, the end of the year. We're trying to look at the positives. Talk about something that... Maybe, I don't know, for me, it was just like stories of redemption, right? Mm-hmm. Something a little lighter than we normally, I say lighter, it's not actually that much lighter. But yeah, these tales of wrongful convictions have a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that people are wrongfully convicted. And when they get out, it's very 
like heartwarming and it's awesome, but the stories behind them really fucking suck. I mean, they're yeah, they do. A lot of times these people get screwed over big time. So I wanted to look at a couple. I know it's been a while since we've talked about some wrongful convictions, and I wanted to look at a couple as we're wrapping up the year here to maybe end on a somewhat positive <laughs> note, more positive than normal, I guess. So today I wanted to look at the case of Robert Dubois and the murder of Barbara Grams. So Dubois was born in Tampa and was the fourth of seven children. And while he was growing up, he spent quite a bit of time helping care for his disabled father. He did attend both middle and high school, but he never graduated. When he was old enough, Dubois found a job for an auto upholstery business named Town and Country. Uh, it was also during these years that he managed to get a burglary conviction. According to the Tampa Bay Times, the burglary conviction was, quote, for what he describes as walking into a house that was for rent and walking out to find the police, end quote. For this, he received a sentence of probation. That's kind of just a little tiny backstory. So I want to talk about uh, Barbara Grahams for a moment because I think one of the things that gets lost in a lot of the wrongful conviction cases is there's still a victim that may or may not receive proper justice after the release of a wrongfully convicted person. Mm -hmm. So in 1983, Grahams was 19 years old. At the time, she was living with three male roommates who were all brothers. At this time, she had been working at a restaurant in Tampa Bay called The Hot Potato. Nice. <laughs> right? <laughs> she lived very close to work and actually preferred to walk the two and a half miles there and back because, according to friends, she was concerned about her weight. On the evening of August 18th, 1983, Grams got out of work relatively late in the evening and began her usual walk home. Witnesses reported seeing her while she was walking. Unfortunately, though, she did not make it back to the apartment. The next morning at approximately 8 a.m., a dentist pulled into the parking lot of his practice, a building that was on Graham's route home from work. There, he found Graham's body in the backyard, bloody and beaten, and immediately called the police. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, when police arrived and began investigating the scene, quote, Graham's was nude except for a tube top that had been pulled down past her chest. Her face and jaw had been beaten and she was covered in blood with scrapes and tears on her neck. She also had bruises on her limbs that appeared to have been made by the pressure of her attacker's fingers, end quote. Upon further investigation of the crime scene, police found several pieces of two by four with blood and hair, giving the impression that those that that's what had been used for the murder weapon. They also noticed a white circle on Graham's left hand, indicating that she may have been wearing a ring although there were a lot of conflicting statements later about whether or not she wore a ring or like what the ring looked like. And there was never a ring um, that was recovered over the course of their investigation. Police also took fingerprints from an air conditioner and from Graham's wallet. I will warn you, I'm going to be going through the evidence in this case pretty heavily because the evidence plays a huge part in this exoneration. So Bear with me. <laughs> Police began interviewing witnesses, 
finding a neighbor who had heard a pair of screams the night previous and a loud car radio and tires squealing, but didn't witness the crime itself. They also found witnesses who reported seeing Graham walking home the night before. But when they had seen her, um, she had already gone past the dentist office where she was found, which led police to believe that she had gone past and actually turned around and decided to go get a pack of cigarettes from a convenience store near. It's kind of like near the dentist office, but it's back. It's an intersection before. Graham's body was taken to the Hillsborough County Medical Examiner, Dr. Lee Miller, who performed the autopsy. His conclusion of blunt force trauma seemed to match with the evidence police had found at the scene. Dr. Miller also collected the evidence for a rape kit, including vaginal samples containing white fluid. And later, as Dr. Miller was washing the body, he noticed what he thought was a bite mark on Graham's left cheek, which he swabbed for potential saliva. Dr. Miller decided to pursue this bite mark evidence and called a local dentist, Dr. Richard Powell, for help identifying the bite. Again, according to the National Registry of Exonerations, Dr. Powell, quote, had been classified as a forensic odontologist by Miller's office. Powell was not certified in the specialty, and this was his first criminal case, end quote. After taking a Polaroid of the bite, Powell concluded that it might be from someone missing upper front teeth, specifically a left front incisor. He also claimed to see tear marks and that he thought the lower six teeth had no gaps in them. Following his initial photographic examination, Miller, um, the medical examiner, removed a portion of Graham's cheek and placed it in formaldehyde which caused it to shrink approximately 10% in size. This is like the moment in this case where I'm like, okay, here we go. (laughs) The Tampa police opted to get Dr. Richard Suveron to help identify the bite mark evidence. Dr. Suveron was a leading forensic odontologist at the time, whose big break came after testifying at the 1979 trial of Ted Bundy. He advised the lead detective on the case to use beeswax to make an impression of bite marks from the suspects, which could be filled with a solid composite and compared to the original bite mark from Graham's cheek. When he had the opportunity to look at the preserved bite mark in person, Suveron agreed with Powell's findings of the missing tooth. Meanwhile, investigators continued clawing at leads and investigating potential suspects. One was a woman who worked at a nearby convenience store who claimed that while she didn't recognize Graham, there were some like known troublemakers that would just hang out. They were hanging around outside of the convenience store and that she only knew them as Ray, Robert and Bo. So she kind of pointed police towards this house that, when they arrived, was vacant, but had mail in the mailbox with the name Dubois. And when they searched a little further, they turned up the names Victor and Robert. But when the police spoke with their parents, they said they were pretty sure both boys had been home on the evening in question. And if they had gone out, it was to search for their sister, who had been reported missing on August 16th. Now, when police asked Robert Dubois for his bite impression. He agreed, although he hadn't had any gaps in his upper or lower teeth. The impressions were sent to Suveron, who determined that Dubois had made the bite marks. I mean, it just straight up as that. This is the guy. 
Dubois was arrested in the early hours of October 22nd, 1983, and was charged with murder and attempted sexual assault. Authorities then made a second bite impression, again determined by Suveron to match the marks on Graham. Enter the classic jailhouse witnesses. So reliable. <laughs> yes, yeah. I do. Before I go into this, just a note on jailhouse witnesses. There, there is a very trackable pattern, I would say, of jailhouse witnesses lying in order to receive some sort of benefit, whether that is shorter time on their sentence, the dropping of charges, physically receiving something in jail, like if they get I don't know, a better room or better food or whatever. It is something that happens really often. And we are just now realizing how damaging some of this can be. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that everybody who is an inmate that has information that testifies is lying. I'm not saying that. But you need to be able to look at what are the benefits that this person is getting Mm -hmm. um, and what is their track record? You know, have they testified in multiple cases? Mm -hmm. There are some people who are just like make their lives as, yeah, as jailhouse job. informers. <laughs> yeah. Which is so crazy. And I can't believe that this is still like allowed, you know? Well, I can believe it. I'm just not okay with it. <laughs> right. Which is why I'm so interested in um, the states that pass the laws tracking jailhouse informants um, and jailhouse witnesses. I'm interested to see how that works, if it's going to be successful in kind of keeping track of the cases these people are involved in and the and the benefits that they receive mm -hmm. in relation to their own cases, if it's going to provide some more information into, like, statistically speaking, you know, how many, what percentage of these people are actually getting big breaks and of the cases that they testify in, how many of those people have been wrongfully convicted, right? I am interested to see that. I know it's going to take many years before we have any information like that. So five years in the future, we'll have a like a BTC update on the jailhouse <laughs> informant situation. <laughs> okay, so when he was arrested, Dubois was put into the section of the jail that is designated for inmates with mental illness because he they believed he did have some mental illness that needed to be addressed. So while he was there, he met an inmate named Claude Butler, who had been charged with kidnapping, armed robbery, a probation violation, and assault on law enforcement officers. And he was looking at a total of two life sentences. Mm -hmm. Butler went to jailers and told them that Dubois had admitted that he, his brother Victor, and a friend of theirs named Raymond Garcia raped and murdered Grams in this sort of like robbery gone wrong uh, situation. Mm -hmm. Neither Victor or Garcia was ever charged. And after providing this information to law enforcement, Butler pleaded guilty to the charges that that he had received, and he only got five years in jail. It's a lot less than two life sentences. I mean, that's mm -hmm. like one hell of a deal. Yeah. Just saying. <laughs> Police also had a second witness, Joanne Suarez, who claimed that uh, Dubois had told her he had killed someone and that she may have seen him wearing a ring. Mm -hmm. 
Dubois' trial began on February 25th, 1985, with the prosecution sticking with the theory that Dubois had attempted to rob Graham when it went wrong and he decided to rape and murder her instead. They proceeded to provide the bite mark evidence, calling Souveran, who testified that, quote, he had a reasonable degree of dental certainty that Dubois made the bite mark. Although he acknowledged on cross that he, oh my God, this part makes me so mad. He acknowledged on cross that he had said during a police chief's conference in 1984, quote, if you tell me that this is the guy that did it, I will go to court and say that this is the guy that did it. (laughs) Okay. Okay. (laughs) Straight up. Like, no shame. This guy had no shame at the time and still very little in current day. The defense, of course, brought their own forensic expert in who just happened to be the chairman of the Bite Mark Guideline Committee for the American Board of Forensic Odontology. His name was Dr. Norman Sperber. Dr. Sperber testified that there were way too many inconsistencies between the bite mark on Graham and Dubois' teeth. It's also worth mentioning that there was no other forensic evidence that put Dubois at the scene. You got to remember, they collected blood and hair samples off of the two by fours. There were fingerprints that were collected. They did, although this is in the 80s, so DNA technology was not anywhere it is on the level that it is today. But they did collect sperm samples and had all of this extra stuff. None of it at the time with their, their testing capabilities at the time connected Dubois to the scene whatsoever. I do also want to say that there's a lot of like really sketchy testimony that I'm not going to go through because mm-hmm. it, it it's like witness after witness. That's just like super sketch. So look up the, the trial info for this case because it's kind of wild. But the jury deliberated for two days before finding Dubois guilty, convicting him for capital murder and attempted sexual battery. It was recommended by the jury that Dubois receive a life sentence, but that was overridden by the judge who decided instead to sentence him to death. Of course, Dubois appealed, arguing that the casts made of his teeth after his arrest were based on an illegal search and that Butler was acting as an agent for the state, making his statements unconstitutional and that the judge had abused his discretion when he overrode the jury's recommendation. Most of these appeal claims were thrown out by the court except for one, the application of the death sentence. Florida's Supreme Court held that the judge had not given proper deference to the jury's recommendation, and they resentenced Dubois to life without the possibility of parole for 25 years. Now, many, many, many years go by with not a ton of movement on the case until 2006 when Dubois made a motion for post-conviction DNA testing, which is pretty common in these old cases if DNA was taken. Because like I said, in the 80s, they had like no DNA technology. Unfortunately, according to the courts, they said all of the DNA in this case had been destroyed in 1990. Then in 2018, the Innocence Project uh, began representing Dubois and immediately got to work. Many of the Innocence Project's successful cases have hinged on the invalidity of bite mark evidence. So they're like very experienced at looking at this type of evidence, along Mm -hmm. with looking at the unreliability of jailhouse snitches. Those were like the two big things that they were focusing on. 
the timing for this reinvestigation into Dubois' case was perfect, too, because in 2016, a new state's attorney, Andrew Warren. So Andrew Warren gets elected. He actually beats out the incumbent state's attorney who was the original prosecuting attorney in Dubois' case. So new state's attorney, he comes in, sets up a conviction review unit. And of course, they agreed to look at Dubois' case in September of 2019. When looking into the jailhouse snitches, Butler, who had received a five-year sentence, actually had his sentence reduced to time served, which ended up being about 13 months. The prosecuting attorney claimed during the trial that he had had no previous contact with Butler and they had made no deals, which turned out to be false. In fact, the prosecuting attorney had overseen the indictment on one of the charges that he had ple- he had pled guilty to. Of course, also, the bite mark evidence was a huge part of their investigation as, and I think we've talked about this many times in the show, forensic odontology has pretty much completely been discredited as a valid form of identification. Mm -hmm. It's just not science. (laughs) Guys, bite marks are not science, okay? (laughs) According to the National Registry of Exonerations, quote, Even the ABFO, which is the American Board of Forensic Odontology, even the ABFO said it was no longer acceptable for its members to use language such as reasonable medical or dental certainty. And a 2009 report from the National Academy of Sciences said that there was no scientific foundation to support the idea that human bite marks are unique or that skin is capable of faithfully recording those marks, end quote. So even the guys that do this investigation are like, yeah, we can't we can't say that anymore, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Upon reexamination of the bite uh, of the bite mark evidence in Dubois case by forensic odontologist Dr. Adam Freeman, it was determined that the determination of dental certainty had no basis in science and that the cheek tissue being placed in formaldehyde made the sample unusable for comparison the beeswax impressions made resulted in distorted impressions. And even more important, the mark on Graham's cheek wasn't even a bite mark. Meanwhile, the Florida Conviction Review Unit was doing a parallel investigation into Dubois' case and managed to find three slides from the rape kit that had been hanging out in the medical examiner's office this entire time. So they thought all of the evidence was with the police, but actually the medical examiner had had hung on to just these three slides from the rape kit that held DNA. Mm. This DNA was sent for testing and it revealed two distinct DNA contributors, neither of which were Dubois. The results from the DNA test were entered into CODIS and it didn't return. Um, it did return a hit for someone whose name hasn't been released by police, but this person has no connection whatsoever to Dubois. After all of the findings by both uh, the Conviction Review Unit and the Innocence Project, the Office of the Attorney General filed a motion on August 26, 2020, to reduce Dubois' sentence to time served, and Dubois was immediately released. Then, on September 10, 2020, Dubois' attorney from the Innocence Project filed a motion to vacate. 
The state wrote a response for the most part agreeing with their findings. The only thing that they disagreed on was the deal made by the then prosecutor with Butler. That was like kind of the one thing that they disputed that he knew about that deal or that he they had previous contacts. They kind of didn't want to go that far. But as far as all of the like DNA evidence and the bite mark evidence, they were like, yep, we agree. All good. The judge in the case granted the motion on September 14th, 2020, and Dubois' charges were vacated. When he was arrested, Dubois was 18. He is now 55. He spent a total of 37 years behind bars thanks to bad science. I We talk about bad science a lot because mm-hmm. it happens to come up a lot. I think there's a lot of things that we still need to learn about some of the scientific procedures that have just been taken at face value uh, for for a long, 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 long time because they contribute to a lot of this bullshit. Like, it's just facts, man. <laughs> it's just facts, man. <laughs> but that's the exoneration of Robert Dubois. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, kids. If you're uh, if you're ready to hear even more tales about some fucked up science, buckle up, guys, because I also decided to look at wrongful convictions in a scientific way. And I originally was trying to find something that was strictly drug conviction based because I really wanted to talk about how messed up our system is with drug convictions. So this is a twofer. This is science and fucked up drug convictions. Oh, my God. Okay, I'm ready. (laughs) So on New Year's Eve 2016, Dasha Fincher and David Morris Jr. were on their way home when they were pulled over by police. Deputies Cody Maples and Alan Henderson in a report said they pulled over the vehicle for a window tint violation. Okay. The car's driver was David and Dasha Fincher was in the uh, passenger seat and both of them had a suspended license. During the search of the vehicle, deputies found a plastic bag filled with a blue crystal-like substance in the passenger side floorboard. Oh, God. Sounds, sounds a bit like meth, yeah? Yeah. Now, now prepare yourself because this is where things get really fucking absurd. Fincher told the police the substance in the bag was cotton candy. Okay. Okay. The deputies performed a NARC-2 roadside test, and it came back positive for meth. Both Morris and Fincher were arrested. Now, deputies charged Fincher with trafficking meth and possession of meth with intent to distribute. Her bond was set at a million dollars. That's... Um, she couldn't afford it. That's a little <laughs> excessive. This is in Georgia, just so you know. Oh, God. Okay. So most of <laughs> oh, this is going to be about Georgia. 
So she couldn't afford the bond, so she remained in jail for three months while the evidence was being tested. Now, I put a picture down here of the dash cam footage of those two being questioned. And on the roof of the cop car is the bag right in view with the blue stuff in it. Okay. Now, Vicky, does that look like cotton candy to you? Can you see it? What does uh, it look like to you? It just looks blue. It doesn't really look mm-hmm. like anything, but it just kind of looks blue. Okay. What about the bag? Does the bag look like a Ziploc bag or does it look like an open top? Oh, no. It's bag? like a huge. So it's like a very big plastic bag. It's very wide. It's not something that's like a Ziploc bag that you would or like a little bag that you would put drugs in. I'm sure everybody's seen like the little dime bags that police pull out of cars you know it's not that yeah it's It's almost like a garbage bag it's pretty big Mm -hmm. so it's a really big i think it's like a four gallon size open top plastic bag that was tied yeah now 94 days later the charges against fincher were finally dropped when the gbi crime lab determined that the sample was not a controlled substance it was fucking cotton candy oh my god just like old cotton candy that had crystallized. No, it was straight up fucking cotton candy. <laughs> like fluffy cotton candy? <laughs> like fluffy blue fucking cotton candy. Oh my God. What the fuck? So this is just one of many, 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 many cases of people being charged and convicted based off of false roadside drug tests. Now, if you're not familiar, NARC 2 roadside test kits are one of the many test kits that police have in their arsenal to test drugs at like a arrest on the road. A lot of people who are convicted of possession of drugs are roadside tested with NARC, specifically NARC 2 roadside test kits. These tests have extremely high rates of false positives. So much so that the package states on the side to make sure that the results are confirmed in a real lab. I feel like if that's a warning that comes on the package (laughs) that they shouldn't, I mean, call me crazy, but maybe the test shouldn't be used to arrest people in the first place. (laughs) You would think, you would think. So the kits cost $2 a kit. And what they're supposed to be used for is to initiate arrests. But we'll find out later that actually they're being used to straight up convict people right away. So Fincher uh, was seeking damages and sued the company that made the kits uh, for the time that she was in jail. Fincher's lawyers argue that the company negligently designed the product because they knew or should have known that the device could lead to false arrests. Unfortunately, a district court in Georgia dismissed her complaint. So this story actually caught attention from the news. Fox 5 Atlanta's investigation team started looking into the prevalence of this practice after hearing about Fincher's story. Based on their analysis of Georgia police records, they found that at least 145 people were wrongly charged with felonies after a field test falsely claimed they had drugs. Wow. Instead of ecstasy, cocaine, or methamphetamines, people who were jailed actually had common items like incense, headache powder, and cleaning supplies. Oh, my God. At least three people were found to have pled guilty before the lab results came back. Now, this sounds a little crazy. Uh, Why would people plead guilty? Well, if you're familiar with our fucked up criminal justice system, they were offered significantly reduced time if they pled guilty or they could risk more jail time with a guilty verdict from a jury. 
Very common. So a lot of these people just, yeah, a lot of people just took the guilty plea and served a couple months. Yeah. Oh, yeah. According to a ProPublica article, a minimum of 100,000 people nationwide pled guilty to drug charges that rely on field test results as evidence. And, you know, that's because the tests are so frequently used. Even a modest error rate then could produce hundreds or even thousands of wrongful convictions. So they um, are they have more than a modest error rate. <laughs> so if you take that into consideration. <laughs> I love how it's a minimum of 100,000 people. Like the fact that that's the low end is like yep. insane. They are used in every single state. Yeah. So why the hell are police even using these? Well, a little history. Uh, this goes back to uh, the tests first being developed in the 60s. Um, and then there was a drastic increase of use in the 70s with Nixon's war on drugs. Police departments everywhere started using these tests because they were easy to use and cheap, which greatly helped out departments who didn't have lab access because most departments back then were sending their evidence out to be tested real far away, like maybe not even in their state. Yeah. Coupled with the fact that drug law enforcement sections weren't even really created yet until the 70s so they didn't have a whole lot of people on the street being able to deal with drugs in the first place so it was in 1974 when the first study of these tests were done and they tested their their efficacy and it was stated that caution should be used when relying on test results from these quick roadside tests they stated that departments should not rely solely on the results of these tests Four years later, the Department of Justice stated in a warning that the test should not be used for evidential purposes. Since that time, there hasn't been massive testing of accuracy of the kits, so the means of quality control effectively weren't established for these test kits in the first place. So I feel like if that's if if there still hasn't been any of this testing, I'm sure the Department of Justice hasn't come out with a different directive then don't use these for evidential purposes. So... Yeah, so basically what they're saying is that you can pretest somebody and you can arrest them, but you can't hold them. Now, this is a little bit... We'll get to this later on, but okay. it has a lot to do with DAs and prosecution and Ugh. the way that states handle drug charges in the first place. That's the actual real issue. I'm already so frustrated. <laughs> So these tests are basically like pH tests that you would use for a pool. You drop the substance into a vial, you crack it open, or some of them require to add drops of liquid. You shake it, and then you wait for the liquid to change color. Then you take the vial and you put it next to a chart to determine what the substance is that is present. Now, the Fox 5 Atlanta investigation team did a few tests of their own on some of the substances that came back as false positives. And their results were pretty fucking interesting. So we're going to play a clip here for you. And you're going to listen to the investigation that they did on some products. And we'll see what the hell's going on. We gathered many of the household items that law enforcement officers wrongly determined tested positive for drugs. And we tested them ourselves. Pop the first ampule. We carefully followed the instructions for the NARC-2 test kit made by Searchy, uh -huh. the leading provider of police field tests and the one most often listed for the 145 false positives. Many of our tests came back negative, the solution not matching the color on the package that would right indicate there. drugs are present. Then we tested blue cotton candy. It said we had a bag of blue meth. Right. 
a clear example of a false positive. We also tested folic acid, the vitamin that Dorval police said was ecstasy. A positive test should show up purple. Could be purple, could be red, but it's certainly not ecstasy. If it came back this color for Dorval police, and maybe it wasn't as well lit as our studio is right now, understand why they saw it as purple. So could some tests be faulty and some cops colorblind? Both of these crime photos supposedly show a positive reading, even though the colors clearly don't match. In Georgia, there is no mandatory training for a cop to use a field test. So, oh my God. That was a lot. You could hear from that. Yeah, there was a lot of information being thrown at you. Um, Another case that uh, a person who was wrongfully convicted was that they had tabs of this woman was trying to get pregnant and she had tabs of folic acid in her glove compartment and it came back as ecstasy. So there's a lot of things going on with that. Um, first of all, uh, the blue cotton candy tests positive because it is blue dye. All yeah. Right? So cotton candy is all dye. So you're putting it in. It's a colored substance. You're putting it into a mixture and it's changing it the color of what a positive would be. It's not because of what's in it. It's because of all the dye in it. Yeah. So <laughs> that was like a weird fluke. Yeah. Um, but some of the other things that popped up, they they looked kind of in between a positive and a negative. So here's the other thing. A negative is blue and a positive is purple. Okay. And you're mixing it with a substance that's color changing. Um, oh and so God. when you take a look at the pictures that they show, everything is this weird in-between shade yeah. of blue and purple. It's like this reddish purple color. Yeah. So you're... At night, on the side of the road, you pop this test kit, you have a flashlight, there's no lights around you, it looks like, you know, whatever. Yeah. Color, it's positive to you. You arrest them, you take them in. The longer a test like that sits, usually even like a pregnancy test or a dipstick drug test will keep changing color. Yeah. So if, uh, if, for example, you take a pregnancy test and you pee on it and it's negative and you set it in the garbage can, it'll eventually turn positive because it's sitting there for so long. It just keeps activating and activating. Uh-huh. It's not actually positive. Yeah. That's just the way that those quick dip tests react. Yeah. And so this is the same case with the, the roadside test kits. It's doing the same thing. Hours later, they're taking a look at it in the light and they're like, okay, yeah, for sure, it's positive. So you're already starting this problem, and then they're not going to retest it at all, no. or maybe not for days, weeks, or months. Yeah. What I will say, one of the other interesting things that they, I think they mentioned was you could have an officer that's colorblind, mm-hmm. which when you think about it, just statistically speaking, men are far more likely to be colorblind than women. Mm-hmm. Men are also, they make up a larger percentage of police forces in general. Police force. Mm -hmm. So I feel like the probability that there is a male officer on scene that is colorblind is like decently high. Yeah. And with colorblindness, a lot of times you have a hard time differentiating like dark colors. Yeah. So like blues, browns, blacks, dark purples, you can't tell the difference between that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so if the colors that you have to choose from are navy blue and dark purple, right? even people who aren't colorblind have a hard time differentiating between colors. So it's right. like, right. what? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. 
Yeah. So what makes a lot of this even worse is that most of these cases, the evidence is not retested at all, which blows my mind. Wow. Now, this is especially the case if somebody pleads guilty, they are not retesting evidence at all. They're not even going to look at it. It's going to go in a box and it's going to get shoved away somewhere. Oh, my God. So according to that same ProPublica article, prosecutors in nine of 10 jurisdictions surveyed nationwide accepted guilty pleas based solely on the results of a field test. Oh, my God. I I wonder, too, like, (laughs) if there is a statistic about the amount of people brought in on drug offenses that ask for attorneys, because I feel like Mm -hmm. if you were to get an attorney and they'd say, plead not guilty we need to get X, Y, and Z tested because the yeah. thing, like the thing is you could plead not guilty and then later change your plea. Right. Mm-hmm. But you need time to get all of this extra evidence in order to prove your right. case. And you can, you can really only do that if you plead not guilty. So I wonder how many of these people yeah. ask for an attorney can afford an attorney. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. So the other issue with this too is the bonding. Yes. So you have people and this happened with, the Dasha Fincher woman, mm-hmm. her bail was set at a million dollars for a quant, like not even a huge quantity of quote unquote meth. Okay. Yeah. So you're coming before a judge, the district attorney, whoever is saying, all right, well, we're going to set this bail excruciatingly high because this quantity is close enough to say that you're going to sell it on the street. Mm-hmm. Now, Bonding in and of itself is a huge issue. But when you factor in drugs, usually the bonds are astronomical. Right. Because they're, you know, taking into consideration, well, if you're a drug dealer, then you will have enough money to bail out. But these people aren't drug dealers. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So a million dollar bond is absolutely disgusting. Yeah. But this is a common practice. And this is just part of that cyclical issue that we have with the jail system. There's a larger article that discusses in depth the issue with the the bond, um, in particular uh, for Dasha Fincher's case, which I have uh, put up here and you can read it. But that's like a whole nother episode. For this mm-hmm. one, I just really wanted to concentrate on the fact that people are relying on roadside tests that are absolutely unreliable. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, my God. So according to the Innocence Project, quote, inevitably, this means that innocent people are among those pleading guilty based solely on false positive field test results. And because there are no checks and balances in place to verify the results that judges and prosecutors are so quickly to accept, most people will never have their chance to be exonerated. So you have this accumulation of wrongdoings happening. You have cheap test kits. You have untrained police officers. You have extreme bail requests for small drug charges. You have ridiculous jail time requirements for those drug charges, and no one's retesting evidence for conclusive findings, and so on, and so on, and so on. So I'm going to tell you another story about someone who got pulled over. Lee Cowart and Samantha Mallard were another couple who were pulled over in their Jeep for a minor traffic violation. The officers on the scene found a small amount of white substance in the center console of the car. When tested in a field test kit, it came back as meth. The couple told the police it was sweetener. In fact, it was Splenda. As Lee Cowart was being arrested, he asked the arresting officer if there has ever been a false positive. Now, this is recorded on the officer's body cam footage, and you can watch it. 
Oh, God. The officer on the body cam footage can be heard saying no, not that I have ever heard of. So they say that they've never, ever heard of a false positive from a field test kit. Oh, my God. As the officers were investigating, the head patrol officer arrived on the scene and decided that he was going to conduct his own test. He walked to a nearby gas station, took out a packet of Splenda from the coffee bar, and put it in his field test kit. It came back positive. He had the couple immediately released. Oh, my God. (laughs) I mean... So there is footage of this happening from all of the police officers' body cams that you can... um, This happened after the cotton candy incident as well. So people were already aware of these false things. Fox 5 Atlanta was already doing their investigation. So that police officer lied to their face. There was lots of evidence that there was false positives from these test kits. Yeah. And I say fucking kudos to that head patrol officer yeah. who went over there and decided to go and check out and see if Splenda was actually going to test positive. Yeah. But they were released and they did the um, Fox five did an interview with them later and they were like, you know, we were, our lives were flashing before our eyes. We for sure thought we were going to jail because of fucking sweetener. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, <laughs> Not an uncommon thing. Like, I know a lot of people, especially if they, like, travel for work or, like, are in the car a lot Mm -hmm. or whatever, who will just have, like, a Ziploc bag of sweetener with them. Mm -hmm. Um, And it looks like various drugs. (laughs) For a long time. Yeah. And a woman. So this is just sprinkled on their council. A woman would come in every day and get a huge iced coffee with 20 packets of Splenda. Okay. Oh, my God. She wouldn't ask us to put it in. She would do it herself. So we would hand her 20 packets of Splenda with a stir stick and she would do it in her car. And I could only imagine the amount of Splenda that was sprinkled throughout her vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. So and it's not even like it's inside of a container. It was just residue sitting. If you went in my car right now, you'd be like, what kind of drugs does this bitch got? Because I have like fucking coffee cake crumbs everywhere. There's oh my dust. God. Like, my car is dirty in the center council. Same. So it's like, you're really going to take someone's dirt and be like, these are drug residue and come back later. And it's like crumbs off of a fucking coffee cake. Like, get out of here. <laughs> yeah. But like you said, I do at least give credit to the head patrol officer um, for being curious enough to try it out himself mm-hmm. and not just taking this thing at face value because i think i think like 99 percent of officers would just be like this is what they trained us on here's the kit that's it you know bish bash bosh done. exactly you know and the thing with testing in a lab too when you take something to a lab they don't just test it once right they test it multiple times they need some sort of idea of a control mm-hmm. and so That also takes these test kits further. They're doing one roadside test kit, okay? Yeah. If you don't even think about the error rate in a scientific setting, like the scientific method, you wouldn't do one test and be like, that's it, that's done. Mm -hmm. You need to do a series of tests. So, And the fact that they're not doing more than one roadside test with these, you know, like what what kind of basis, what kind of scientific basis are you starting here? Like you're not. (laughs) Right, right. So... And this is another story that I got from, I believe it was the New Yorker. They went into great detail of this story, but I'm going to give you just an overview because this was even worse. And it was not in Georgia. I believe this was in Florida. Okay. So Amy Alberton was another woman who was pulled over for a minor traffic violation of not signaling properly. 
The cops claimed they saw a needle in her car in the lining of the ceiling and that they found a crumb on the floor. Okay, so they said that they thought they saw a needle hanging out in the ceiling of the car. Okay. And then they saw a crumb on the floor and they were like, drugs. Okay. So they pick up the crumb on the floor and they tested it and it came back positive for crack cocaine. The car was actually her boyfriend, boyfriend's car, and he was the one driving at the time. But because it was on the passenger side, she was the only one who was convicted and arrested. Two days later, Alberton pled guilty in Harris County Criminal District Court for possession of a controlled substance. She was sentenced to 45 days in jail and was released after serving 21. Four months later, the substance was tested, and it, in fact, was migraine medication. Oh, my God. Wow. So that's an example of someone who was so afraid because this woman was also going through a lot of um, issues with her ex-husband and her son who was disabled. There was issues with her job. So there were some things going on, and she just pled guilty because she thought she'd be able to get out of jail real quick. Well, they gave her 45 days. And eventually they let her out after 21 because she had no other charges before. So a lot of people think this pleading guilty as an alternative so that they don't have to, you know, they don't run the risk of having to serve years in jail, right? 45 days sounds way better than maybe potentially spending a few years in jail. Yeah. But they waited four months to test the kit, the evidence in that kit that they took. And (laughs) it was headache medication. Mm -hmm. And when you looked back at the police report, they had mentioned that there was a needle, but there was no needle in the evidence and they did not take a needle. But turns out that that was actually false information that the police put in the police report to argue them testing the crumb on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. So you have a series of all of these lies and this woman spent 21 days in jail because of it. Right. And it's the thing about these these type of convictions, too, right, is that it's great you know, that they found, I mean, I don't want to say it's great. They eventually discovered what it was for a lot of these people. When they discover what it was, the charges are dropped or the convictions are vacated. But Mm -hmm. the, there is still an issue with that because getting a charge vacated, even after it's been proven to be not the substance that they originally had said it was, is difficult. One, two, Mm -hmm. The arrest records don't go away. So when you're looking for, you know, the convictions might go away, but when you're looking for jobs and stuff, they can see in a background check, you know, arrested for Mm -hmm. this, regardless of what the outcome was. So that's going to be attached to you for an extended period of time. Yeah. In fact, in the article, it stated that she was up for a promotion to become the floor manager of the bar that she was working at and was denied that because her criminal background check came back. As she was arrested. Yeah. Now, of course, that's all it says. It doesn't, it says arrested for drug possession. It doesn't say anything else. It doesn't right. go into detail that she was actually falsely accused. Like it doesn't explain anything. Um, no, no. And a lot of places can't actually, because there's another kind of background check that you can do that goes deeper and like explains a little bit more about what happened mm-hmm. than just the one line like was arrested. Yeah. So she wasn't she kept her job, but she wasn't able to become a floor manager at the bar because of that. Yeah. Yeah. And most most places are not going to do due diligence to that extent where they, you know, pull up the, Mm -hmm. the dockets, the criminal public criminal dockets and see where the case went. Like people are not going to go through that trouble if they see, you know, arrested for this. 
that's going to be kind of the kind of it for a lot of um, employers. Exactly. So it's something to think about, too. Even these people that get arrested and by the time they get to like trial, it's found to be something else. They're released. No, no convictions. But that arrest record will continue to stay. So now these tests uh, after this investigation have slowly been being phased out by some police departments, but that's not the end of the roadside tests. There's actually a new one that is making its rounds that is just as dangerous. Now, you mentioned in a wonderful kismet situation that marijuana is now legal in a lot of states. <laughs> Woo! So you can possess it, but you can't drive under the influence. That's yeah. still illegal. Yeah. This has led to the development of a new roadside test for roadside impairment. Um, that is a saliva test that is now being marketed to police departments in states and provinces in Canada that have legal marijuana. The Drager Drug Test 5000, which sounds like it's made up, yep. uh, <laughs> is a saliva test that changes color when the presence of THC or other drugs is detected. Now, just because THC is detected does not mean that the person is impaired. That just means that there was THC in their system, which if you know anything about anything, THC can stay in a person's system for a very long time, even after the effects of the drug have ceased. Correct. So the test, the Strager test, also tests for opiates and cocaine as well as THC, but they're mostly using it to see if people are driving under the influence of THC so that they can kind of make sure that people aren't driving impaired yeah. due to legal marijuana. Yeah, when you say a long time, it's literally weeks. Like if you are mm -hmm. a And if you take a hair a hair sample test, it yeah. stays in there forever. It's like months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even so yeah. I mean obviously you don't you're not going to stay high from THC for, you know, like 4 months. That's just not how it works. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> it just doesn't how it works. It's basically a residue that stays in your system. Right, right. Um so the, already the test is you know, fallible because it's just testing levels of THC in your system. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Now, Acumen Law in Vancouver had some small scale tests done to show the problematic nature of these roadside tests. They had individuals eat store bought poppy seed muffins and homemade muffins with significantly more poppy seeds in them. When the individuals were tested, all of them came back positive for opiates. So super duper sensitive. Yeah. Uh, they even tested the individuals right after the saliva test with a urine test, and the urine test even came back positive as well. So there you go. Right away, issue, they're eating poppy seed, which is related to heroin. Right. And the test in both cases, one that is a roadside test and one that is a control test, are both coming back positive. Yeah. And that's not heroin. So... Mm -hmm. <laughs> Another test was conducted with coca tea, which is very similar to the plant cocaine. Coca tea is legal in certain places because it doesn't actually get you high. Okay. Um, the person drank the coca tea and then tested positive for cocaine. They also had testers try to see if the saliva test could tell the difference between THC and CBD. And they found that the people who ingested only CBD had positive saliva tests for THC. Oh, God. Okay. So if you know, CBD is not psychoactive. It is not a part of marijuana that makes you trip out. Nope. It is the part of marijuana that is the most healing aspect. A lot of people use CBD. You cannot get high from mm -hmm. CBD. 
Nope. <laughs> so if you're taking a CBD product and you get pulled over and they said, Ooh, what is this munchie that you have in the middle here? It's like, oh, it's a CBD gummy or whatever. They're going to be like, CBD, that's marijuana. And they're going to test you and it's going to be positive. <laughs> yeah. And you're not impaired. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If anything, your backache has gone away and that's about it. Right. Uh, <laughs> so they also did uh, the roadside test. They also did another roadside test of the machine and found that when temperatures outside dip, dip below 40 degrees Fahrenheit, the machine's accuracy uh, significantly diminishes. So these are actually like little machines that people are spitting into vials and they're running it in through the machine. So this test was done in Vancouver, which is known for being fucking cold. Yeah. So their average, you know, temperature is 40 or below about six months out of the year. Right. So you're taking a machine that's already got problems and you're taking it outside into negative degree weather and it's going to make the accuracy even more fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you, if you recall our junk science episode, you know that testing needs to be very rigorous and that it, that quick rapid test results are basically a waste of tax dollars. Even testing at labs has been under scrutiny because of, you know, human error, computer error, just plain old fashioned messing up your equipment, mm -hmm. people not paying attention, mislabeling things. Science, unfortunately, is not infallible, which is why when it comes to criminal law that relies on testing, there needs to be a better system of checks and balances. So what should be happening is it should be a series of tests. And because we're so eager to arrest people, it's turning into this kind of avalanche snowball that is bringing in all of these people who are actually innocent and making them spend time in jail. Yeah. So if you learn anything from this is that if someone pulls you over and says, oh, my God, there's a substance in your car. We're going to test it. Call a lawyer immediately. Oh, my God. Yeah. Do not call a speak to police and call say, a lawyer. You cannot search my car. <laughs> call a lawyer. Roadside tests are not accurate. No. They will arrest you. Don't be afraid to tell the cops to fuck off. I'm calling my lawyer. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. And that is a BTC promise. <laughs> Call your lawyer. It will be better. Yes. 100%. 100%. But that's the stories. <laughs> that's fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. You were like, oh, these are going to be lighter. And I'm like, eh. It's not so light. I was trying to do something like positive for the end of the year, but I mean, you know. I did throw a positive one in there of the, yeah. the you know, the people being released because it was Splenda, but yeah, there's just so many more I people know. who don't even get a chance. It's true to even prove their innocence. So yeah, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> well, on that note, if you have a hankering for a poppy seed muffin, put it down. Yeah. <laughs> If you have <laughs> called your attorney and you're waiting for them to arrive, you can listen to this podcast while you wait. We're the Vocal Fries. I'm Carrie. And I'm Megan. And we have a podcast about linguistic discrimination. We talk about language, not being a jerk, not judging people for the way that they speak, and we try to have a good time. We talk about things like vocal fry, swearing, Southern American English, and prescriptive grammar. You can find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. All right, guys, that has been our show for this week. Hopefully, uh, it'll be enough to get you through the Christmas season. I, I don't know. Into the newest year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if you liked the, this episode and you want to hear more just like this, you can go to uh, Bad Taste 
podcast.com where we have all of our episodes uploaded there. You can also find links to uh, donate and to our merch page. If you so there's still, I don't know when this is, this will be up after Christmas. If you need Christmas gifts, yes, this will be you, the week, last week of December. <laughs> yeah. If you, uh, forgot to buy somebody a Christmas gift, you can go to bad taste podcast.com slash merch and get some shirts and Stuff. sweatshirts <laughs> and blame it on the mail. Yeah. Like, oh, the mail didn't get it. Exactly. Time. Oh no. <laughs> that's a good, see, that's a good plan. See? Yep. We haven't mentioned this in a while, but we would absolutely love it. If you left us a review on your podcatcher of choice, mm-hmm. iTunes, Google play, Stitcher, any of those, Leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Uh, we would love to hear it. I just know we hadn't said that in a while. So, yeah. There you go. Or hop on over to Patreon. Also, Patreon. We've got tons of content up there, like back catalog of extra bonus content. All the content. Yeah. So, yeah, you can you can find all of that at badtastepodcast.com. I think that's, like, kind of it at the moment. Mm-hmm. Until next episode. Oh, man. Next episode. In the new year. Episode 100. (laughs) Yeah, we are closing in on episode 100. It's so exciting, but we will celebrate next time. Yes. But for now. Up the champagne. (laughs) Damn, I should have gotten champagne. Anyway. I have. I have champagne. (laughs) I'm not going to pop it, though. (laughs) For now, uh, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zakshowski, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Podcast. We will see you in two weeks for our 100th episode. Goodbye! Bye! Happy New Year! Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.